0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hite. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth
1: brought to you by Pelgrane Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include...
1: Jazzing up humble subsystems. Chicago hot dogs. Selling your game.
0: And posadismo. It has come to pass.
1: The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now.
0: Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world.
1: The new edition has a completely new character creation system.
0: Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state.
1: The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal, to change the world.
0: And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong.
1: Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for players, run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone.
0: Buy them individually. Or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more
1: at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies.
0: Or leave immediately for your local game store.
1: Because Unknown Armies is there right now. the rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And here in the friendly confines of the gaming hut, we're talking game design, not game play. We're talking about subsystems in game design. And by an odd coincidence, Robin, you've recently worked with a subsystem in game design, haven't you?
0: Yes, and and this segment is a bit of a sequel to uh, our recent one where we talked about uh, system humility, of taking a subsystem uh, that is not meant to take up uh, much of a a mental footprint in the minds of uh, gamers or much time at the table. And this time, uh, we're going to go a little bit different and talk about a system that I uh, have uh, designed into the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, which we recently... Wrapped our Kickstarter on, but is still open uh, for pre order if you want to uh, jump in and make sure that you get your copy nearly as super quickly as the Kickstarter backers. So, if you have a choice of problems, the problem of this rule set is taking up too much time and has too much going on in it, let's make it simpler, is nowhere near as good a problem to have as the one that I am currently working on, which is that the Uh, version of uh, combat that I have uh, created for the Yellow King role-playing game is a little too humble. It serves its function, it does what it needs to do, and the functions are, I I wanted it to be much quicker and easier to handle than uh, your uh, standard gumshoe combat, and I wanted it to be player-facing. This has long been a dream of the gumshoe team, I think particularly of, of uh, Simon Rogers, that we would have a system that uh, the GM never has to roll. And so uh, it's player-facing in that the only rolls that happen are the player rolls, and they roll against a difficulty number.
1: And the only tactical decisions, I think, right? Uh, the the bad guys in Yellow King, in in the Yellow King combat, the good guys have to decide what their goal is for the combat, right? If they're right. trying to... Uh, Capture or escape or kill a guy or bust through or whatever and the bad guys just respond to that or am I wrong and the bad guys also have goals? Uh,
0: The bad guys may also have an agenda that is chosen by the GM. Okay. So both sides are choosing the tactical agenda. Right. And and that's actually more strategy than tactics because it's what do you want to happen not how do you make it happen. Right. And there are ways that the creatures can make their success more likely or uh, ways that you, as the players, can make your success more likely by changing the conditions, and but that's all reflected as a, as a modifier to the difficulty that you're uh, rolling and attempting right. to get the uh, hit the right number. And what the combat system also does is that it also allows for the shock cards or the more likely the injury cards that are uh, so much a feature of the uh, new version of the rules that are reflected in this new game. It gets them rolling, but theoretically you could do a version of this that melded the two things. You could either have a version of standard gumshoe combat that instead gave out shock and injury cards, or you can have a version of this combat that reduced your health and, and stability the way that it happens in, in the esoteric or in Nights Black Agents. Now, it turns out that although this works, it's perfectly functional, it hits all of those things, the question then becomes, is this fun enough? Can I make it funner? As as we say here on the podcast, without making it too much more complicated, and so the thing that I'm working on now is adding in some elements of combat that went by the wayside in an attempt to boil it down. And so the, the hit main locations thing... primarily, right? Right. right no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the hit locations uh, are kind of there with the shock cards, right? Because you can right, get yeah. broken arm mm-hmm. or. Uh, You know, shattered kneecap. I haven't yet written a shattered kneecap uh, shock card, but, you know, I still have 60,000 words to go. I'm sure I can fit in a shattered
1: kneecap. I think in a game as full of Parisian hoodlums and parapolitical leg breakers as half of Yellow King is, that a shattered kneecap should be right up in there.
0: Oh, I think I've hit upon something that's missing in the game. I absolutely will have to. I should add a stretch goal for shattered
1: kneecap. Now, now don't make that a Ken requests. That's logic requests.
0: Don't <laughs> yes. don't
1: take my Nadar space and don't take my zoo.
0: I, I will not take your zoo. Your well your zoo is cordoned off anyway. Right. Your zoo's perfectly uh. safe. But yes folks, I'll we'll give you I'll shatter your knees for free. That's my, There you that's go. My that's motto. the Robin promise. But what it was missing rather than shattered knees, more of a sense of suspense. Uh because what was happening in the table was that uh everybody was rolling at once and then you just compared how many people succeeded versus how many failed to get the difficulty and that feel took away the thing that you really want from uh, a combat which even in a super brief combat you want a few moments where everybody's sort of on the edge of their seat thinking are we going to succeed or are we going to fail but everybody just rolls at once that's that's not as much fun that's too brief also it turns out that there was a statistical anomaly in the system i was using which is that there was a different chance of success whether there were an odd or even number of uh player characters participating in the fight <laughs> that's that's best right this brings us to a digression though because statistical anomalies are interestingly anomalous in the following way which is that brains aren't good at noting game statistics in play so that uh no one ever noticed any such problem uh while we were playing uh, and uh it's only when uh people with a sort of a a mathematical uh, view of the world. Look at a set of rules on the page that they find statistical anomalies, and there are much uh, slighter statistical anomalies in certain designs, uh, including there's a particular you know three percent difference in one of the Hero Quest charts at one point that drive math people crazy. But those things only matter when the math people find them and talk about them online. They don't actually. <laughs> Effect play at all, because you don't actually notice the probabilities.
1: Some of some of them do. I mean, classically, the example was that uh, the storyteller botched dice, where your chance of botching went up as your skill got higher. So, because botches were on one. So, I think people noticed that. I think it was not just uh, our good friends, the math people that noticed that. The people they who took stats. noticed
0: super egregious ones. Yeah. and uh, And we can congratulate, you know, the original... Uh, vampire designers for finding they found a statistical anomaly <laughs> big enough for people to notice at the table. So kudos it, it, to them. It created the
1: sense of unheimlich that a true horror game of the uncanny requires, I feel.
0: Yes. You could make an argument for that, right? The yeah. the more the, the higher you rise as a vampire, the, the more doom comes to crash in on you. But, mm-hmm. but people know that that was a <laughs> that they would identify that, I think, as a rationalization. Uh, I, I would hope so. <laughs> right. So anyway, as a happy follow on from making it more suspenseful, I've found a way to also remove that annoying statistical anomaly, which I don't want to have to rationalize in such a fashion for right. the next 10 years. That that would be bad. You don't want it's a PR problem, if not a play problem. Right. And so what I'm uh, working with now, and again, maybe this won't also su- survive playtest, uh, which will then mean we can do another segment about it later.
1: Oh, thank goodness. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> we always need fodder for segments. Yes. Rehumbling
1: uh, is... and unhumbled subsystem coming exactly. in approximately 10 weeks.
0: Yes. So what happens now is it's more, it takes account uh, not of just whether you uh, succeeded or failed, but how big your margin was. Uh, of success or failure. And so the entire group is trying to get a collective margin now uh that is uh, zero or greater. So if you fail by two, somebody has to succeed by two to even that out and get you back on the grounds of victory. So the next question is, so we've dealt with the anomaly, so how do we ne- then make it suspenseful? Well, obviously you have each person roll in sequence and what happens with each role, then everybody has a stake in, because you're going for the collective uh, victory of the whole group as to whether you succeed at your uh, strategic objective or not. Uh, And the way to do that is the people who are spending the most on their uh, roles, because as you know, folks in Gumshoe, you get to add a certain number of uh, pool points uh, that you choose to your fighting role before you make your fighting role. Uh, The people who are spending the most get to have the big blare of uh, victory and swashing and buckling as they uh, leap into action. But then as you go along, the people who are least likely to succeed and therefore most likely to tip victory back into defeat uh, go in sequence. And if there are people who are in the room, probably are going to be spending the same number of points. So all the threes go first in room order, all the uh, twos go first, all the ones, and then uh, all the zeros. And so that gives you... Everybody is now concentrating on what's going on. There's that attenuated uh, thing where there are, it now feels like there are a bunch of roles rather than it feels like, oh, you know, just one role that everybody is making at the same time. And so that, uh, gives us more of a sense of, um, suspense and, uh, people get a running total as you go along. So it's like, oh, you're up to three, you're doing really great. And oh, now you're down to minus two. And there's an additional follow on effect of that was it, it now makes it much, Easier to narrate the general progress of the fight, so that you can, as a GM or as a players, you can describe the back and forth within the overall melee, uh, even though each player is is only uh, rolling once. So, Ken, have you uh, had similar experiences of trying to make a something that was functional but not uh, fun enough more fun?
1: Uh, right now, we are in the play t- the alpha playtest stage of uh, Vampire. And we're not necessarily trying to make things more fun. Things are still pretty fun. But what we are trying to do is make things a little more ornamental in that right now we have die tens still because they're lovely dice and everyone loves die tens. But the the basic role is now a, a success is always six or better so we've functionally replaced the die 10 with a die 2 so the job now is to figure out things the die 10 can do in play ideally in that role that will make things interesting again uh and not interesting in terms of the fiction the fiction is plenty interesting but in terms of the die roll being interesting and there's a couple of, uh, you know, we added criticals, which is, uh, had its own fun with uh, statistical anomalies and has the advantage of being something that I think fits into that sort of larger than life vampire super powered concept where the vampires are extraordinary, uh, creatures capable of extraordinary feats. We've got the hunger die. Uh, when you roll your dice for frenzy, the success level depends on your current humanity. So that's nice. Um, and there's, other things that I suspect, as we build out subsystems we'll find more things to do with that die roll, so it's not any individual subsystem is humble already; they're all pretty arrogant it's vampire, <laughs> but
0: yes, the vampire rules never cross their arms and become invisible no, they do not
1: um and and so the uh notion though of getting sort of uh All the possibilities out of that wonderful 10-sided die are still, I think, in the minds of the development team. Right. So that's kind of what we're doing is we're making the resolution a little less humble, not so much the system that you're using the resolution for.
0: Right. Because if you've got something that's sort of a pass-fail, but also there are other numbers attached, once you get to, for example, designing the crunchy bits, you can have a thing where, you know, the bonus, you get an extra weird thing happens if you succeed on an eight or higher or a seven or higher, right, or whatever, yeah. and you can start to add sort of gradations into that so that it doesn't, rolling one particular crunchy bit power doesn't feel mechanically exactly the same, but you're still all referring to and modifying in sort of an exceptions based way, a very simple uh, uh, or at least a very straightforward system.
1: Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's the goal is to, Provide provide an individual feel for individual actions, and ideally to make each of the disciplines feel like itself, not like just you know rolling the same number of dice into an effects based you know sort of quasi champions feel where you know you're still rolling dice and counting sixes no matter what happens. It'd be nice to be able to have the disciplines have their own. I mean, I think we can easily guarantee that thaumaturgy for the tremere will feel like its own thing because it always does, but it's going to be a little harder to say. You know, here's how Celerity is going to feel, uh, different from here's how Obfuscate is going to feel different. They're, they may wind up using the same engine and it would be funner, I think, though maybe not simpler, if we could figure out some Phillips and some, uh, fun stuff to do. Because once you're applying your, your uh, discipline, it doesn't matter if you're taking a little bit out of the moving through because you want to focus on your discipline. You want that to be unhumble. You want that it, to it's your spotlight pop time. up. exactly.
0: Yeah. And if your spotlight feels mechanically a little different than Josie's spotlight uh, sitting over next to you, that's uh, that's all for the better.
1: That, that is all for the better. And that's sort of the, the that's, that's a goal to reach for past the alpha. Right now the alpha is getting uh, some of these new hunger and uh, frenzy and uh, the, that that uh, spiral tapped in nicely and then uh, making sure the combat works as, as our basic sort of uh, role to achieve things system so that we can then go on and start applying exceptions
0: to it. So if we have a common factor in both of these uh, design issues, it's that we want the players to feel more emotionally attached to what is going on. And we are dealing with that in different ways by finding ways to give them more spotlight time, a moment that is just for them, uh, that can go one way or the other or feel different than the uh, moment that comes before that or or after it. And also, uh, as with any resolution system, the whole point of them is to uh, not just simulate your chance of succeeding or failing, but also to introduce suspense as, you know, what is going to happen when I roll this die, what's, uh, how is the story going to uh, change? So I guess our overall answer is if you have a system that turns out to be functional, but uh, a little, you know, is not grabbing the spotlight time, the thing you want it to do is find a way to have the players grab uh, more spotlight time. And I would go on, except we've already spotlighted. We've grabbed uh, a little too much spotlight time, I think. Exactly. And, and there's something even more exciting about to leap into the spotlight just after this commercial message.
1: Hey Robin, what you working on these days?
0: Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee.
1: Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards?
0: Yep, that's the one.
1: And is that hideous wailing I hear, the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pelgrane Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get out on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why,
0: thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken.
1: Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes?
0: It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock
1: card? Oh... The Yellow King role playing game pre order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock
0: card. The blort of mustard and the low Teutonic grumble of the sauerkraut tell us that we've once more entered that most delicious of huts, the food hut. And uh, those of you who uh, pay very careful attention to the calendar and its relationship to the show know that uh, last year. We started a tradition right about this time where we invite Ken to wax rhapsodic about a apparently humble, but it turns out uh, funner than you might think, food. And last year, it was your encomium to the humble blueberry. Not humble. The blueberry is an aristocrat, Robin. (laughs) <laughs> well, a- after you talked it up, it's the it, North it, now it it's is, just unbearable. It, well,
1: it, it was ennobled by the pot, by the spirit of will.
0: Yes, well, and it does wear a little crown. But we already talked about the blueberry. We did this time. As a true Chicagoan, uh, your city uh, made its bones, so to speak, packing meat. Yep. And uh, I'm, I'm sure there was a moment when uh, the uh, all the people who uh, flooded up from the south to work in the meat packing plants looked down at their feet and noticed little bits of red stuff all around them and thought, hmm, or more likely the factory owner came along and looked at those and said, how can we get people to eat those? And that's where we bring in the special relationship between Chicago uh, and the hot dog. Did Chicago invent the hot dog? Certainly didn't invent the sausage, but what, what is special about the... Uh, History of Chicago and the history of a hot dog.
1: Well, Chicago did not invent the hot dog any more than Chicago invented the pizza. Chicago merely perfected the hot dog as Chicago (laughs) perfected the pizza. Uh, Hot dogs, uh, as you allude, began as sausage sandwiches. They came out of Germany from the good old German immigrants who flooded into Chicago from the south of Germany. And the south shore of the Baltic Sea, a lot of them. And, and they knew a thing or two about Fleisch. <laughs> they knew a, a bit or two about, uh, the encased meat. And when they came to Chicago, uh, it took a while for, uh, native German cuisine to make its way into American, uh, sort of street food. But the traditional date for the beginning of the Chicago hot dog, the opening of the era is the Chicago world's fair in 1893. And while there were many, many hot dogs and many, many sausages and many, many people eating sausages on buns. The 1893 date is when the Vienna sausage company comes into popular existence and is, um, uh, debuted to the masses. Vienna beef, as it is known in Chicago is kosher, which means that all the bits that are swept up off the floor, have been inspected by a rabbi to make sure they don't have any pork in them. And rabbis being generally good people, they also toss out rat heads and other things that might otherwise have <laughs> made their way yeah, well, into... Well, 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 while they're at it. <laughs> while they're at it, while they're there, uh they make sure that it does, in fact, contain nothing but good old kosher beef. And so the kosher beefness of the Chicago beef frank, the Vienna beef frank, is part of the basis of the Chicago hot dog, because other hot dogs are a beef and pork blend, or they're Uh, a beef, pork, and floor sweepings blend. Uh, You can have many, many hot dogs in many, many varieties. But if you get Vienna beef, suddenly you've got a foundation to build on. And it took a little while for the perfectioning to occur. The canonical date is 1929 when Abe Drexler opened a hot dog stand on uh, Maxwell Street, which is on the south side of Chicago, but at that time was not as far south as it uh, is now. Uh, in this city's uh, mental geography. It is called Fluky's Hot Dogs. Uh He opened it up and said, well, I like this Vienna beef on a dog bit, but I don't think that there's enough stuff on it to get people interested. And the Great Depression having pretty much hit felt that he needed to provide more value for your nickel. So onto the Fluky's Hot Dog, he ladled on mustard, pickle relish, onion, a dill pickle spear, hot pickled sport peppers, lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, and green peppers, all along with um uh, your French fries that you would get on the side. The whole thing was a nickel. That is what we called in Chicago, drag it through the garden. So you would go to Flukie's and you would say, drag it through the garden for me. Uh, it was also known as a depression sandwich because that was your whole um uh, meal. As Flukie's moved forward and as the depression became less depressing, the Chicago hot dog toppings were refined into what we call the Magnificent Seven, which are the mustard, relish, sweet relish, pickle spear, onion, tomato, sport peppers, and celery salt. And that is now the canonical thing that goes on to the Chicago hot dog. Chicago hot dog also classically is uh, steamed, not fried or, or, or griddled. Sometimes it is charred. You can get a Chicago char dog, and no one will look askance at you. Uh, and it is put on a poppy seed bun, not a plain bun. Uh, by and large, although the, this is the canonical standard, there are places in Chicago that will put it on a plain bun that will grill the dog or that will leave off the sport peppers. Um, those are less... Now, is the bun s- toasted or... Uh- the bun is not toasted. The bun is a regular finger roll, just as you might see uh, anywhere. Uh, it, it is not toasted. The, the bun is, uh, gets its sort of, uh, crunch and savor from the poppy seeds, ideally.
0: And, uh, and we've note that, uh, ketchup is, is verboten, apparently. Yes. In you, you
1: noticed that, you noticed the absence of ketchup on that ingredient. One of the, uh, many times that, uh, former President Obama made his, uh, himself beloved to all America was when someone asked him, uh, was he having ketchup on his hot dog? And he looked at the person like they were crazy and he said, not since I was eight. Which, uh, you know, it, it, we can all ex- experience a little patriotic thrill of pride at that uh, great statement up there with tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev. And uh, I personally would extend that to 12 because I'm a I'm a open hearted guy full of forgiveness. Mike Royko uh, famously uh, denounced it, saying, uh, no, I won't condemn anyone for putting a ketchup on a hot dog. This is the land of the free. And if someone wants to put ketchup on a hot dog and actually eat the awful thing, that is their right. It is also their right to put mayo or chocolate syrup or toenail clippings or cat hair on a hot dog. Sure, it would be disgusting and perverted, and they would be shaming themselves and their loved ones, but under our system of government, it is their right <laughs> to be barbarians. And I feel that that um, uh, is an excellent statement of the Chicago way, which is, we're not going to make it illegal, but if you do it will kill you extra judicial so the um uh, the, the the classic chicago hot dog stand doesn't even have ketchup on the premises many chicago hot dog stands uh gold coast which is used to be a giant one and is now slightly less giant having overexpanded as uh, places do uh has ketchup but it is labeled for use on fries only other places <laughs> have other solutions <laughs> uh, places will throw you out for uttering the k-word But yes, ketchup on a hot dog is, uh, is, uh, wrong and blasphemous. And also what it does fundamentally is you've already got the sweet from the relish. If you put ketchup on the hot dog, the balance of flavors, uh, which the hot dog has, the Chicago hot dog has is overturned. Uh, as it is, it's got the umami, the salty, the bitter, the sweet and the sour are all right there. If you put the, uh, ketchup on you overlard the sweet. It would be the same as if you added, you know, I don't know, vinegar. It would just be wrong. It would be too sour, right?
0: Well, you, you say right. But, of course, the Toronto hot dog, now that I hear all of the criteria of the Chicago hot dog, is essentially, uh, I guess in keeping with the balance of this show, the polar opposite
1: <laughs>
0: of the Chicago Hot
1: dog. So it's um, ketchup and chocolate syrup and toenail clippings and cat hair. Is that what I'm
0: well, getting got, at? Well, it's got the uh, the the option to have ketchup. It's not there's there's no condiment that is a must here in easygoing Toronto. We're not going to shame whatever your condiment choice is. the The relish and the mustard are there on the hot dog cart along with the ketchup. And there's actually uh due to arcane licensing rules. Uh, there's only certain condiments that the hot dog vendors out on the street are allowed to uh, (laughs) uh, offer now we're getting the difference between
1: canada and america
0: (laughs) well it's specifically toronto because we could do a whole other segment and i think i've talked about this before about how the regulatory capture of uh, city health officials in toronto has led to a a choking of of food trucks Mm
1: -hmm. same thing in chicago there's um uh, although here it's not necessarily regulatory uh, madness, it's restaurant uh, companies being super good at lobbying the city council.
0: Uh, that's exactly the thing. Yeah, But the, the street dog has long been uh, grandfathered in uh, and, and exempted from the onerous health code rules designed to protect the brick and mortar uh, restaurant industry. But there's only a certain number of condiments that are approved as as healthy. So there was a period where hot dog vendors were trying to Compete with one another to have ever more exotic ingredients, and that was stoutly clamped down upon. But except for that health code thing, there's no particular thing that can or can't go on a hot dog. So you got your ketchup there, you got your thing of olives, you got your. Uh, I don't, I've never seen anyone put olives on a hot dog. I'm sure if I sat in front of a cart for hours on end, I would see someone put the olives on because. They're there. They must be getting used by somebody.
1: Maybe, maybe they're mandated by the, by, by big olive, by the olive Perhaps So,
0: um, they're, the buns are toasted. The hot dogs are grilled. Uh, and, uh, often they are not actually a technically a wiener, but you have a large selection of different sausages that you can have on your buns. So you can have a dibrezzini sausage. You can have a hot Italian. You can have a Polish sausage. Uh, in other words, the grand panoply of our, uh, Cultural uh, sausage mosaic, uh, at least uh, European-wise, anyway, uh, is available for you at a uh, Toronto uh, hot dog stand. We've lately also had a a couple of competing chains uh, where uh, of walk-in restaurants where they try to come up with uh, you know even more different variations of specialty gourmet hot dogs. You can get your like tempura shrimp on a hot dog and and so forth.
1: Now, according to the internet, uh, and you can tell me if this is correct. Uh, local favorites in the Toronto hot dog scene seem to be corn relish, sriracha, and bacon bits. And this is a safe space, Robin. You can say, yes, that happens. Well, yeah, you know the, what will happen. The if corn you say
0: relish that. is super Ontario. Uh huh. The, the green relish exist, but it's sort of an old timey thing. It's like, uh, maybe your grandmother likes green relish, but, uh, the rest of us feel it's the it's the devil's condiment
1: well it's it's bright green just like uh the reagent from reanimator for a reason
0: yeah <laughs> yes. so uh if we if we want our more sugary condiment that's that's where the ketchup comes in and the and the relish goes out
1: although although also apparently uh toronto has available to it canned mushrooms and poultry seasoning for its hot dogs is that something you see in your hot dog stands or is that the internet having fun with me
0: I'll have to take another look. It, it may be up there with the olives as a thing that's there for more uh, some sort of ritual purpose rather than someone actually but eating But the thing it.
1: you can't have on your hot dogs is fried onions, and you can't have
0: mayo, and you can't have cheese? That's the rule? Those would all have been outlawed for these uh suspicious health-related reasons. Mm. The special irony about you can't have fried onions is that they often fry an onion on the grill, or at least used to, in order to create an enticing smell that would draw you in. But then they couldn't serve you that fried onion. Right. But the fact that you were uh, cooking meat and vegetables on the same surface became a pretext for making that uh, an, uh, unacceptable, a, a breaking of these supposed health codes. And uh, and what were the other... Uh, cheese. Cheese. Um, uh, you can have listeria if your cheese is sitting there in a big uh, bin by the side of the road in a, you know, a little things attached to your cart so i think that's probably the issue with cheese which there might even be an argument for that on the street now uh, if you go into a restaurant you know they can put all the fried onions and cheese and you know takoyaki balls and whatever on it but th- those would be rules governing the, uh, the street dog
1: now in uh, uh to uh, bring it into the in, into the restaurant as you just have uh, i am required uh, by i think the spirit of history, the muse of history, uh, to remind our patrons of hot dogs, which between 2004 and 2014 was the greatest hot dog emporium in the world, because it not only had, um, uh, the ideal Chicago hot dog, it also had, uh, a wide variety of other encased meats, uh, from, uh, pheasant to elk, to kangaroo depending on uh what uh the week was uh Doug Sohn, the founder of hot dogs would rotate the game of the week there would be a number of specialty dogs there was a super hot link there was the thuringer that i actually had to travel to germany to ever eat one remotely as good that there was an a, an amazingly good thuringer which is beef pork and garlic uh for those who are playing at home and then the toppings would be designed uh, culinarily to mesh with the encased meat in question, the classic uh, hot dogs dog was the foie gras dog, where you would put foie gras on the, I believe it was on uh, duck sausage and uh, sea salt and uh, a, a store made, I think it was a store made mustard that was on there as well. And that was just umami until the end of your life was how good that was. And uh, there have been many's a the time where when you go to hot dogs and you say, well, nothing else here looks as good as the foie gras dog. I guess that's what I'll have. And when you can say in your heart, I guess I'll have the foie gras hot dog. You are living right. My friend, uh, when Chicago briefly banned foie gras, when Charlie Trotter got a weird case of the consciences and talked to the city council and banning foie gras, making Chicago the mockery of all uh, correct uh, culinary cities around the world. Hot Dugs got the first uh citation for violating the foie Gras ban and then paid the fine and hung the citation up in the window, which the city felt <laughs> was, it up as a marketing the, expense. the city felt was against the spirit of the of the of the thing so when they gave him his second fine, they said, "If we give you a third fine, we're going to shut your store down and so he was not able to do foie gras for a while until Mayor Daly went to Paris enough to answer amazed question says, why would you ban foie gras? What's wrong with you? And, uh, forced the city council to rescind its foolishness. But, uh, so hot dogs was there on the forefront of the war against ludicrous, uh, food regulation as well as the forefront of the war against not having something delicious in your mouth. Uh, hot dog himself. Now he has retired from hot dogs. He now sells hot dogs in the bleachers at Cubs games. If you go to Wrigley, and are, um, uh, over there in the bleachers. You can line up and get a hot dogs dog, which would be delightful. So or, he's retired in the way that Steven Soderbergh retired. Exactly. Yes. And, uh, and his, uh, his line staff, his grill, uh, cooks have opened another place called Hot G Dogs, which is almost as good as hot, hot dogs, but doesn't have an hour long line in front of it. Uh, because it's in Uptown, I guess, and not in Roscoe Village. But... That
0: um, s- sounds like an improvement.
1: Yeah, yeah, in many ways. But it's... Uh, also, it's not hot dogs, and so uh, they are... Uh, it's very much sort of School of Rembrandt, not Rembrandt, but School of Rembrandt is still plenty good enough to be hung in a museum, I feel.
0: Well, now I'm uh, hungry enough to, uh, to to want a hot dog, but we've got many more segments, if many equals two, to get to. <laughs> so let's get to the uh, third segment of this here podcast. What happens when your Steampunk
1: RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your Steampunk RPG. That sounds
0: fabulous. Where can I learn more?
1: In Volume 3 of The
0: Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X.
1: Logically related, but related by their love of role playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name.
0: And don't forget that's F E N I X. And remember that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers, exactly like Scott Stefanski, Rich Rinallo,
1: Matt Ballera, Ryan Lassiter, and Chris McLaren. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, so let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer David Shaw asks Ken and Robin, Like pretty much every other gamer I know, I've been trying to write my own RPG, and it's the bestest, most fabulous system ever created, and everyone will instantly drop their favorite systems to play mine instead. What? Would you and Ken, he's asking Robin, not me, advise (laughs) as a good way of finding willing, reliable, and competent collaborators, and what steps would I need to take, and hurdles do I need to clear to get my game published? Well, uh, to begin with, David, uh, very, very successful game companies indeed can't always find willing, reliable, and competent collaborators, so welcome to professionalism. Um, (laughs) that's, That's the way the world is. Uh, Robin, David is in Scotland. He advises us. So me saying go to Metatopia is not going to work, but there's game conventions in Scotland, aren't there? I seem to remember there's one in Edinburgh that they, or Edinburgh, as I'm told, I must say, uh, that, that you can go to and I'm sure you can meet lovely Scottish game, uh, professionals such as Gregor Hutton or Malcolm Craig, if you go there, right?
0: Uh, I imagine so. Uh, uh, I guess one thing to do would be to encourage people, uh, in uh, Scotland or in other places near you to add a track of programming that emulates Metatopia, which uh, if you don't know already is a convention can that you swear by yes. that uh, has a game designer focus. And so if you want to get your game uh, workshopped all the crazy uh, that would be the place to go. And if you go there and get people excited about uh, your game, those are your uh, new collaborators, some of whom uh, perhaps a non-zero number, Uh, might be uh, professional and engaged and interested in realizing your vision instead of their vision. So this segment is sort of an exercise in both Ken and I, as you can sense, trying to delay the moment and perhaps fob off onto the other podcaster the terrible moment when the awful truth is revealed. And I think I've stalled enough, Ken, that you have to do it.
1: Uh, By the other podcaster, I assume you're referring to James D'Amato. Uh, of one shot <laughs> RPG uh Chicago area <laughs> right, yes. podcast he, he will
0: t- he will tell you the horrible truth he will tell you the horrible truth and we're truth. just going to stall for another right all minutes. we're
1: going to do is vamp for another 10 minutes i would say actually the part where you go to uh your local game convention and you meet other game professionals uh in the sense of people who are selling games that they did at the convention or games that the company they work for did uh, depending on how lofty and eminent a convention you're at, is a great step in that because even if they would, as Robin alludes to, prefer to work on their own creative vision as opposed to yours, they will at least have uh, people that they know who have been in the past willing or reliable or competent, and possibly all three. And so if you are looking for an artist because you are a designer and writer or you are looking for a layout person because you still think Word does a good job laying out and I don't see why I should shell out, Um hopefully someone there will hit you and then recommend a layout person. If you're looking for any collaborator like that, people who have already produced a game by definition, kind of know who those people are. Even if they did it all themselves, they may know people who other people in the industry have used, because as we have alluded to before, it is a small yet collegial field. And so we all pretty much know each other. Uh, It's just like Canadians. Right.
0: The distinction is between publishing your game, which has an array of pitfalls, and getting an existing company to publish your game, uh, which is where the horrible truth part comes in. And can you've, you've adeptly stalled so that I have to be the one. Look
1: at that. James is off the hook.
0: Right. <laughs> it is not uncommon as game professionals, and therefore also uh, uncommon for publishers, to hear from someone who has been working on their role-playing system for a long time and now want to publish it. And both working on my system and I've been working on this for a long time are red flags that almost certainly uh, no existing game publisher is looking to purchase your game and publish it. Many existing game publishers uh, came about when their founders, uh, some of them who have even named their company after themselves, uh, <laughs> Steve Jackson, uh, had a system that they wanted to bring into the world and created a company as a vehicle to do that, which is why uh, all of the sort of... Uh, Trad companies have their own uh, house system and probably a main house system and some on the side. And so uh, when Simon Rogers wanted a new game system, he came to me and said, design me a new system that does X. And the chances of of your system being so exciting and different that it is a unique selling point that creates a completely different play experience is what you want to look at. Because... If you have found a different mathematical resolution system to deliver a play experience that otherwise already exists, whether that's fantasy or horror or or the Western, there's no commercial space for that uh, in the existing uh, setup. And you will have to create, as a labor of love, you may be able to build a little uh, community around your somewhat different variation of what you're, uh, what already exists. But in order to really make a new space for yourself, you have to deliver a radically different play experience that nobody has thought of. But once they hear that you've thought of it, they will flock to. And very rarely does the person who has been uh, working on their system for a long time have that thing, that unique selling point. Uh, often they have a really sort of a cool a resolution mechanic that would have been just as good as another similar mechanic that existed when they started designing it years ago. Sorry, that's, that's the horrible truth. And I, I hate to tell people that, but it's even worse if you uh, then go and print 5,000 copies of it uh, in and create what is now called a fantasy heartbreaker. So at least today uh, you have the route of making your thing available uh, electronically to people and if it does turn out to be a thing that is more exciting than uh, than all of the alternatives and offers something really unique, then you can build from there without having an entire garage full of expensive, unsold books.
1: Which is what I was going to say, is that uh, while the chance of selling a game system to another publisher are, as Robin is forced to admit, nil, uh, the chances of you making a game that looks professional, plays about as well as anything else on the market, and can be put into PDF form and sold on uh, drive-through RPG or wherever else you buy your electronic RPGs is pretty much a hundred percent assuming you put the sweat equity into it because uh, guess what? The barrier to entry is relatively low, and it's a relatively forgiving hobby, and if you've been playing for any number of years, you at least have some concept of what play experience should feel like. It may not be my concept, it may not be Robin's concept, but it might be the concept of many other people who will be perfectly happy to play with your game, even if it provides no new experience, if it provides... The same experience in a slightly different world or in a slightly different, uh, set of parameters than they're used to. Uh, there are plenty of people who are out there goofing around, uh, playing games serially as opposed to playing the same system forever. And some of them might very well purchase your game in PDF form. Drive through RPG, of course, lets them even purchase it in POD form. You never have to darken your garage with a single print copy, but you can, in theory, be a published game designer as easily as anyone else on the planet. So the part uh, that we're really uh, trying to let you down about is just the word published
0: or, or getting published, getting rather published. than yes, publishing, publishing yourself.
1: Right. So the way to publish a game is to do that. And if you develop a play community around it, absolutely. That's the time then to say, go to the Kickstarter. Well, and say, I'm trying to take this game that already has an audience and put it into a nicer edition with, with uh, even better art or a nicer edition with this extra, you know, archery subsystem that I've thought of or whatever allows you to go back and, uh, take your audience to the next level of whatever your play experience is. And that's when you can, uh, go out and try and turn your audience into people who will buy a physical game as opposed to an electronic game and, uh, make you a published, printed game designer. So that's that part is relatively clear and relatively well established in plenty of other places. Should we circle back around to finding willing, reliable, and competent collaborators, Robin? Do you think that that's uh, worth another bite at David Shaw's uh, apple there?
0: Well, I think there's two different stages. Uh, The first stage is finding other enthusiasts who want to run your game and build stuff onto it. Uh, And uh, or to uh, create material for it, whether that's illustrations or uh, graphic design or whatever. But at a certain point, you're going to want to move beyond a volunteer community and start paying people.
1: Yeah, that is how to increase willing and reliable, and usually it also increases competent.
0: Right, because if (laughs) there's someone in the hobby who's already really good at illustration or graphic design, in particular the those are high-demand skills, and there's someone else who's offering them actual money to do things. Um, now, just offering people money is no guarantee that you've found someone who is uh, reliable.
1: or competent. Relying entirely on
0: volunteers <laughs> is a guarantee that you're going to eventually get what you pay for at least... Uh, if not in quality, in terms of when things get delivered.
1: Now, again, if you if you have a a, a friend or a known quantity, someone you've uh, met at a show or someone you've gamed with, who is, in fact, and not like for local values of at this table they're the best artist, but is, in fact, a good artist, then sweat equity is a great way to do it. You do the words, they do the pictures, split it 50-50, you both own the game. You, you become like a, a comic book uh, publisher or a comic book creators, and you can work as a team. And as much work as you're putting into it, that's how much work they're putting into it. But
0: they have to love your thing right? as much as you do and feel the same sense of uh, potential success for it. Right. Because otherwise, you're asking people to work for exposure.
1: Right, but basically. that's the but that's the kind of thing that you well, you're asking them in that case to work for an ownership stake. You're not asking right. them to work for exposure anymore. Right, but you're if, you're,
0: if, you're, if they don't believe that your ownership stake is going to be worth anything, really meaningful yeah. and valuable, which, and that's
1: why I say that there has to be that pre-existing relationship of uh, shared excitement and ideally, you know, shared uh, trust and friendship before you began that process. Right, right. That you can't. Um, uh, just sort of go up to a beloved artist and say, "Hey, Sarah, will you do this art for me?" On the basis of it'd be great if I got art. That's not going to work. There's no chances that that will happen. But if you and uh, Sarah are friends and you've both played the same game, and Sarah's on fire with the possibilities of your game just like you are, and Sarah's a good artist, then Sarah will say, "Yeah, uh, I will do all the art. Well, the game will have a, a good look. It'll go with your words." And we'll put it out there, and if we either of us make a nickel, then we'll both have two and a half cents. And that is a great uh, way to to build a a willing and reliable and competent collaborator, because they've got the same amount of skin in the game that you do. Competence, I guess, you can't guarantee.
0: Right. And they're working at the same level that you are. That you're not approaching somebody who is already extremely established in uh, the field of illustration or graphic design or... uh, Or whatever it is you need. Fiction writing or whatever it is. That you're... Uh, a group of people who are, are going to emerge together as a team and and benefit creatively from uh, that. The, the one final thing that I would uh, suggest that you uh, do as a, a step to, whether you're bringing in your initial community of players or approaching other people who are talented in other fields and trying to partner with them, is have a really great, simple pitch for why your game is the one that they want to spend their time on, whether it's their time playing or playtesting or uh, drawing pictures for, have a succinct, exciting way of explaining why your game is the one that they want to jump on board. Because, of course, as the original creator of something, you already have a stake in uh, this, uh, this game, but that stake has to be super apparent to others as, as to uh, why you want to play this and again if you're if that pitch includes a description of your resolution mechanics it's not really a pitch uh, that it has to be about the play experience about what you do at the table and it may be by implication a thing that you can only do with that set of re- resolution mechanics but only you care about your resolution mechanics the the way that uh, no one else will care more about it than you do and it's not it shouldn't be part of the description of what what's exciting and fun. No, it is.
1: I mean, there are exceptions. Obviously, uh, Epi's game Dread is sold with the elevator pitch. It's the horror game you play with Jenga.
0: Right. But even that's not a... It doesn't describe the it mechanics. It doesn't describe the mechanics. mechanics that... It
1: describes the sort of... Yep. Uh, the, 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 the actual artifact. But odds are you're not using Jenga. Odds are you're using one of the systems that people have always used. So you do have to go, as Robin says, to the play experience, the core story that your game is telling... Uh, you play uh, uh, he- uh, heroic uh, uh, fantasy adventurers who delve into a dungeon to kill monsters and take their stuff and become superheroes. That's that's a good core story because it's the D&D core story. But if your core story is the same as that, only with a robust skill system, that's not actually an elevator pitch. Go back and get a better elevator
0: pitch. Uh, so, uh, on that note, uh, y- you can tell that this is good advice because it's somewhat discouraging.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, again, David is from Scotland, so he's used to the good advice coming with, ah, uh, it's not going to work.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> you can't do that. There, and I think there was a there was some realism in the in the way the question was originally posed. But uh, speaking of realism, let's move on uh, through this commercial toy topic that contains none of it. <laughs> The skies are dim always since the Maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted
1: world. In John Scott Tynes' Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of punch- the Maker Killer.
0: You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sown from the flesh of the maker of all puppets.
1: Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play
0: tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you it's time once again to wend our way up the creaky cobweb stairs to wave at the glowering portrait of uh, Madame Blavatsky and uh, head on in to chat with the consulting occultist Uh, this time around uh, we chat with the consulting occultist at the behest of Patreon backer Stuart Robertson and he wants to know about Posadism, or as I suppose it is more likely to have been pronounced, Posidismo. Posadismo. Posadismo! Um, Ken, if you submitted uh, some writing work, whether it be a setting material or a short story that described Posadismo, I would say, Ken, your satire of the way that uh, communist ideology always runs aground is a mite heavy-handed. This is unrealistic. A little too on the possibly, nose. Can back it, it up do, and try again. It does not contain the crucial element of real-world realism that I associate with your work. And you would come back at me and say, "Oh, Robin, are you familiar with Juan Posada? Yes, or, or as he was known, Homero Romulo Cristalli Frasnelli, which is his birth name." Uh, so yes, this is this is about a guy named Homer who right. created <laughs> his own brand of uh, of Trotskyism. I guess I spoiled it already. It went somewhat awry. <laughs> it went awry. I don't know if it went awry. I think it went great.
1: I mean, as Trotskyisms go, this may be the best Trotskyism ever invented.
0: In that it added UFOs and uh, talking with dolphins. Uh, sure, I buy that.
1: First of all, way to, way to blow the suspense for people. But yes, <laughs> um, it was hilarious and accomplished nothing and never held power. That's ideal. Anyways, our buddy uh, Homer was a football player, a soccer player, and became famous for that but this was before you could become rich and famous by being a soccer player. He wound up working as a shoemaker, but he parlayed his fame into being uh, the union leader there in Cordoba, Argentina, which is where he was apparently from. And as a union leader, he then stood for election in the uh, provincial legislature as a, uh, a socialist uh, affiliated with the fourth international and affiliated with the fourth international. He, he, split from the movement uh, towards the Trotskyist side and away from the Orthodox side and wound up having arguments with the Fourth International because they themselves were saying nuclear war is bad. And Posada said, no, my friends, as an Argentine, well out of the fallout pattern, (laughs) nuclear war is great because it would destroy capitalism and Stalinism at the same time. And what can you ask better for a revolutionary upsurge than that? QED, my friends, one imagines him saying, because he said this. He didn't write it down like a bourgeois guy. He would speak it, and then it would be taped by his followers, who would then transcribe it into newspaper articles when they would print their Posadist newspapers. And people would say, but given that there's going to be a nuclear war, according to your vision, how how do we get out of that mess? And he says, I'm glad you asked, my friends. The UFOs will help us. Because UFOs are from an advanced civilization off in space. By Marxist logic, they must be communists. (laughs) That's how Marxism (laughs) works. It's science, people. Wake up.
0: So any sufficiently advanced uh, society will have already... Achieved the Marxist- Right, is, is uh, indistinguishable from Trotskyism.
1: So the, um, uh, as Arthur C. Clarke no doubt said in his cups <laughs> in Sri Lanka, Anyhow's uh, Posadas then announces Flying Saucers, the Process of Matter and Energy, Science and Socialism, says that we must now move from revolutionary waiting for the saucers to revolutionary revolutionarily contacting the saucers and bringing them to advance the revolution so marxist he may have been but he was still a trotskyist he still believed in a revolution in an unprepared population as the best way to go the, the vanguard just uh,
0: had bigger eyes and, and bigger and eyes big, big, and was gray a little bit
1: grayer yeah he briefly became influential in cuba because His union was influential in the Cuban uh, Communist Party. And when the Cuban Communist Party took over, they were like, hey, all the communists are cool. And then they realized that the Posadists were, uh, what do you want to say, bananas. And um, they got banned eventually in 1966. Castro denounced them as pestilential. And then the Posadas accused Castro of having Che Guevara murdered. And then it turned out that Che Guevara was not dead. He was in Bolivia uh hiding out and uh, trying to launch a revolution. And it was so successful that South American communists didn't know what was happening. So good, good, good going there, Che. And then when Che got whacked by the Bolivians, Posada said, well, it was probably the Bolivians, but we don't know it was. So he was a Che truther. He was a UFO guy. He was a big fan of um uh, nuclear power and nuclear war and using um, uh, the powers of the atom to summon uh, aliens to us. And in general, uh, couldn't have been a better person uh, running uh, um, a big, big fan of the space program. Uh, And then he died in 1981. And wouldn't you know it? It turns out it was just a cult of personality the whole time. It didn't have genuine revolutionary consciousness. The Posadas parties have pretty much fallen apart. Although the Posadist International, uh, is still somewhat in existence in, uh, Brazil and, uh, Uruguay, but even the Uruguayan Posadists got, uh, less than t- a tenth of a percent of the vote. So they don't seem to have really recovered from the passing. And one hopes the being taken up into space heaven of our boy Jay Posadas.
0: My favorite detail as I uh, briefly skimmed the subject matter, was that uh, the Posadas would become involved in guerrilla movements. Uh, so they, they you know there were Posadas who were uh, engaged in, in fighting and uh, worked through violent ends, but were notorious for diverting uh, funds from armed struggle into newspaper publishing.
1: Yeah, well, they were, they were good Trotskyists. Yeah. Um, uh, unlike our boy Trotsky, who was perfectly happy to mount an armed struggle and diverted funds from people he struggled against into newspaper publishing. Big difference. Um, uh, that would be Trotskyism avant la lettre, I suppose.
0: Well, I, I guess, I guess we've reached the point where we have to, uh, start making stuff up. Uh,
1: I do want to mention, uh, in terms of making things up, um, and I'm not saying it's not made up, but some people have compared, uh, the federation to Posadas' vision, the Star Trek Federation, and have thought that maybe Gene Roddenberry picked up a Posadas newspaper at some point and was fired by its vision of the future. I find it unlikely that Gene Roddenberry, as new-agey and simple-minded as he was, was also picking up Posadas newspapers, but I suppose nothing is impossible in the world of
0: Random atoms. Well, in, in the backstory of the uh, original series, there is a horrific nuclear war that changes everything but that's not portrayed as a good thing. No. <laughs> it's not Oh, finally the nuclear war happened and after that we had transporters. So if we are going to create fiction surrounding Posadas, or or I guess Neho Passatis if we want to uh, put it in our current day, the question is in our universe are elliptonic forces real? So If there are no UFOs, they're just a a group of people with eccentric views, some of which have uh, trained uh, in guerrilla warfare and are therefore uh, possibly uh, dangerous to our protagonists. But in a world where uh, the UFO aliens are coming, what are the UFO aliens doing? Are they showing up going, oh, these people would make really great minions. We're going to uh, briefly research uh, this book Das Kapital in order to Promulgate our, our ideology and get in and you know make it seem to uh, these guys that uh, we're their vanguard that they've been waiting for, and then we can use them to uh, mount our secret invasion plan, which they're not going to realize. So the
1: invasion of the solidarity snatchers. Yes. <laughs> they they seem like communists, but
0: they're somehow different. Yes, they just want to you know take all of our magnesium. I- I
1: like the idea that the aliens have studied Marx, they've studied Das Kapital, they're like, okay, we're going to pretend to be communists, that's how we're going to fit into the humans, that's what they believe the wave of the future is, and then instead of landing in South America to meet Posadas, or in the Soviet Union, they land in America in the 1950s, and McCarthy is like, get (laughs) them! They're communists! It's like, oh, damn it! Why? What? What's wrong with you people? Why can't you all agree so that we can in- infiltrate you correctly?
0: Or, you know, they could be, uh, sort of, in their own minds, they could be doing a, a favor to humanity, because their their technique when they go and make contact with uh, people is to determine what the prevailing aspiration is, and then and then deliver on that. And so they, you know, get a hold of posadas literature, because it has all the-, the keywords that they're looking for, and Uh, Because they're aliens, they don't quite realize that uh, the majority of the world uh, doesn't want this to happen. And so they go, oh well, obviously this is, you know, we hadn't thought about it before, but in this culture, uh, posadismo makes a lot of sense. So we're going to have to do a favor for humanity by arranging for nuclear war. And uh, we're going to put all these steps in motion. The humans are pretty close to it already, but they just need to be nudged this way and that way and a flyover of a couple of their uh, missile silos, that'll get them on edge. So, uh, you know, we'll send a few expendable craft over. And so they, uh, for whatever reason, uh, think that, uh, yeah, this is the way to go. Uh, This argument is really great. Uh, So let's, uh, let's help nuke the world for, uh, for the Posadists.
1: So in the game, are you playing a post-Holocaust in which the aliens have nuked the world for the Posadists so that the revolution can rise uh, in his ruins, and the aliens are wandering around as the sort of communist white brotherhood, guiding uh, some part of humanity towards uh, what they tell us is all going to be peace and Marxist paradise. And you are either the workers' collectives in the surviving Argentina, trying to sort of work with your alien brothers until you get the sense that they don't really have revolutionary consciousness. They be trying to eat us and take our magnesium. Or are you the Uh, Heroic Americans surviving in a military base in Australia or somewhere who then have to fight intergalactic alien communism as well as uh, all the other problems, you know, mutants and uh, cobalt rain and whatever else. Uh, Who are we playing, or are we playing in a world where the aliens are among us, but attempting to bring about a nuclear war, and it's a more standard gray infiltration type game, where they're
0: moving around? Yeah, I I see a couple of options, and and one is your techno-thriller, where where you're working to avert the global nuclear conflagration that the confused aliens are trying to bring about for us, uh, in order to free us from our uh, tyrannical rulers. Uh, the other one is, is, as you suggest, the post-apocalyptic one in which uh, you are the survivors on the fringes and you uh, slowly determine what happened and you realize that uh, the aliens did it. And and they may no longer even really be a force. They have, as is the way of uh, Trotsky ideology, they have split into five or six different groups and wiped each other out. And so only their uh technology and and saucers and stuff remain as a possible resource and then as you go along you start to realize that uh it's been actually many decades since the conflagration and you begin to realize that there are underground installations still full of people who survived and you discover them but the uh computers of these installations have taken over the lives of the people i think they've uh developed cloning in order to uh you know, keep their populations going, but they're fanatically anti-communist. These computers, <laughs> and so that could be your backstory to get you into a uh, a backwards version of paranoia, where the uh, you are the outside survivors, uh, and you're trying to uh, uh, bust up the uh, uh, world of the uh, of the computer in order to somehow save uh, humanity. Because why else, in you know? The future that uh, had 2016 and 2017. And why else would the computers be obsessed with communism? Well, obviously, because the aliens blew up the world once they got high in Pusadismo.
1: For a, for a brief second, I thought that what you were doing was trying to work around to do a a darkly humorous version of the Roddenberry uh, TV show Genesis 2, where... Uh, the the guy wake awakens in the post apocalyptic future and he discovers that he 's part of a technocratic underground that 's uh fighting against this uh these alien uh, Infiltrator dominate, and they go around in like a, a a train system that somehow runs underneath the Earth's crust. And, and I was like, oh, well, this is a deep cut from Robin, uh, <laughs> Posadas Genesis 2, but you went Posadas Paranoia, which, while less deep, is still also very appealing.
0: Uh, I, I thought I would try and get one closer to the plate than Genesis 2.
1: I think that um, another thing that we're sort of leaving on the table, and I can't believe we left it on the table this long, Posadas, of course, is big in the 60s, right? He's pretty much the only Trotskyist In Latin America, his if you are a Trotskyist in Latin America in the 60s, the chances are very good that you're a Posadist, UFOs and all. And the obvious situation is if you are Delta Green agents in the 1960s and you run into this weird cult of people who love aliens and are looking to start a nuclear war, you are like, are these mythos crazy people or Posadist crazy people? and is there a difference and is posadas an a uh, glove on the hand on the claw rather of the migo or is um uh, somehow posadas connected to the uh, great race of yith that wants to have a nuclear war to get humanity off the table so that the cockroaches can evolve and they can flee into the future sooner What's going on with this Posadas? Because this is too crazy to be regular Trotskyism. And that can be sort of a question that lingers. And if your campaign goes to Latin America a lot, as it well might in the 1960s, uh, you keep running into these Posadas fringe groups. And they can be, in some cases... Genuine crazy people, or in other cases, genuine Trotskyists who have to believe in UFOs because it's what the leader believes in, and they would really rather not discuss it. Thank you very much because it's embarrassing. Or they might be manipulated by the Migo. They might be leftover bits of a, of a memetic bomb that was dropped on humanity by the Migo at some point in the Andes, and it just sort of filtered around until it got to Posadas, and he you know, brings it back around. And the MIGO are like, we just wanted to program everyone in the Andes to love us and let us mine magnesium. What's wrong with you? And so the MIGO are as baffled as anyone else, but they're using it because they're interested in the way human brains, you know, convolute. And uh so you've got any number of possibilities that Posadism, it's not going to be one thing, because it's a Trotskyist movement, newsflash. And so the, um, uh, the Delta Green agents can be confronted with this weird posadist underground that shows up in strange places, such as maybe even in Ohio, California on the set of popular science fiction TV shows. And so they are wondering to what extent this is a mythos operation and to what extent this is just strangeness. And every time they run into it, they have to investigate it.
0: As you know, Ken, there's a, a weird sub-sub-genre of the spy uh, genre, the uh, the weird spy story, mm-hmm. uh, typified by Ken Russell's final take on the Harry Palmer film, The Billion Dollar Brain, also Moorcock's Jerry Cornelius uh, novels. So you could have a weird spy campaign in which the aliens are helping the Posadists to accelerate nuclear destruction in, you know, let's say uh, 1969. But as you penetrate the mystery, you discover that they're not actually in contact with the aliens as they believe themselves to be. But in fact, it's the dolphins who they've been trying to talk to, who have uh, figured out how to pose as aliens now that they made contact with the Posadas and are manipulating them to bring about a nuclear Armageddon in order to uh, get these dangerous, destructive humans off the face of the earth so that they can have uh, the oceans to themselves. And uh, they, these may be the crazy dolphins because yeah. there's probably some sane dolphins who are going, wait a minute. The ocean is part of the same ecosystem. We don't want to live in an, a radioactive world. Maybe it's the
1: orcas that have gone bananas. Could be. Could and, be the, and the dolphins are like, no, chill out, man. The orcas are like, no,
0: the orcas do have even more of a chip on their shoulders that's yeah. for sure uh, but at any rate the uh so you discover as you're going along that you're the, the the sort of hidden masters who are giving you the clues to move you through are the competing group of cetaceans who uh, don't want the oceans to become radioactive even if it means that uh, humanity will continue to spread and so you're unknowingly uh, working uh, for the dolphins in order to thwart the UFO cultists who are unknowingly uh, working for the killer whales, <laughs> and so once our podcast uh, gets to that old cliche, yes, the old it's, killer it's whale for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pell Press. Ask Arc Dream. Dork Tower. In Pro Fantasy
1: Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Sidle up to the condiment table alongside such patrons as... Rich Spanauer. Brendan Power jeremy french kevin j maroney and mark giles snag ken and robin apparel and other erudite merchandise
1: at tpublic.com slash user slash ken robin
0: on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time and once again we will talk about stuff